Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichette. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. <clears throat> Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is a Monday. Monday, November 13th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives. As we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that they start here in the upper left-hand corner, It will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? That chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships, and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you choose to tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process. And it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We help people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives. And secondarily, because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any list to share with us, please do so by giving us a call at 563-999-3581. Call that number, press 1 on your phone, and we can have a conversation. It will put the 
icon of a hand by your phone number. And I'll turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code. And we have great appreciation for anybody that chooses to do that because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives more they actively use these tools. But also it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work when we know how it's landing for you. So how is this landing for you? This last week we've been digging into using the way of mastery once again, reading it, reading it with commentary, reading it slowly, reading it with an eye toward unpacking hidden gems. And um, over the weekend I decided I would go back and listen to some of the some of the readings we did from 2022 where we read The Way of Mastery beginning on January 10th and I was um, I was interested just to hear what was it I I focused on or found as a highlight at the beginning of last year as it might be different from what I focused on or used as a highlight this year. And one of the things that struck me right off the bat was when I first started reading it on January 10th, I didn't even read The Promise. And this year when I read it, I read The Promise and focused on it and found in it what my eye and ear tells me is essentially the the forgiveness process from The Course in Miracles. Put away everything you think you want your trifling treasures put away, cancel every goal you have, and leave a clean and open space for the Christ mind to come. And in the promise, it has the same thing. So it's fascinating to me just to watch what jumps out at me these various times that I read this work. Area code 610, you're in the air. Hi, it's me, Tim Bingham. Can you hear me? Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, you're a little faint, but I'm turning the volume up. Go ahead and speak into the phone if you would, please. Welcome, Tim. Okay. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Um, What I'd like is for you to work with me through the teen slash adult worksheet for my four-year-old little boy well let's begin with having you um, tell us how things have been since our last session working you through the uh, the Diedrich Wolzak process yeah well it's gone gone pretty well Um, I get down to the four-year-old boy and I have trouble (laughs) doing the worksheet with, from the perspective of the four-year-old boy, um, so um, that's what I'd like to work on. Okay, so what do you mean when you say you have trouble with it? What's happening? 
Um, I don't know how to answer the questions. Um, I draw I draw a lot of blanks. Um, What questions? Okay, let me get out the one I did. Do you have the teen adult worksheet um, there, Andy? No. No, I might be able to pull it up on uh, on the web. So you have one that's labeled teen slash adult? Yeah, worksheet. Well, the ones um, that I had trouble with were 9 and 10. All right, so this is the teen slash adult 12-step worksheet? Yes. Okay. Well, number 9 says, in order to collapse the active reality in my mind, I let go of my goal. Is that the one you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, um, did you begin the worksheet process? I did. Yes. Okay. I'd like to go through the whole thing with you if you have the time. All right. Let's let's yeah. Let's let's do that. Let's start with one A, where it says I seem to be upset because my trigger. And who's the trigger in this situation? My in dad. This case, it would be your your father, right? Yes. And then, and then, what you write? What did you write for the summary of what what your father was doing? Uh, when he appears at night, he, he he seems strange and mad at me, and wants me to wants to get me out of the house. Okay, so you wrote that in the in the worksheet. Yes, yes. And then it says, and then it says, to breathe and soften. And then the worksheet reads, my reality is made with thoughts from my own mind. As I learn to take responsibility for and change my thoughts, my realities will change. So the feeling that comes up for the four-year-old when your father does that is what. Uh, Abject fear. All right, and you put abject or total fear or terror in in one B and one C. Right. What's the thought that you're using to create that fear? That I'm going to get thrown out of the house. Okay. All good so far, and you write that in there. Yeah. And step two says, fear, hostility, and punishment, blame, all of these distort my realities. I prefer to be responsible, and I prefer to see accurately. So it asks you to put a check mark in that box and take a breath, making okay. the verbal statement that I prefer to see accurately. And then step three says, I willingly let go of my feelings of abject fear and my thoughts that you just stated. 
and my need to be right and put a check mark in each of those three boxes. So I have trouble with three. The little boy letting go of the feelings. Um, right, but for now, but for now, just do it. Right. This is the beginning of this okay. is that we that we practice the verbal release, the verbal statement that I release. And when we first begin doing this, our mind, our body, energy system doesn't even know what we mean. We've been practicing for so long to stay focused on being right and to holding on to our feelings as though they're important. So when we first started, yeah. it it just feels empty. But as we practice over time, it builds and strengthens. So just okay. say, I willingly let go of my feelings and take a breath. I willingly I let, willingly go, of my let thought. go of my thoughts. Yeah. Okay. Take a nice deep breath and say, I willingly let go of my thoughts. I willingly let go of my feelings. I willingly let go of my thoughts. And I willingly let go of my need to be right. Right. And visualize Please. yourself being that four-year-old or being the adult coaching the four-year-old into doing that. Just as an experiment. Okay. Just to play with it for now. Okay. And then... And then the step four is I choose peace and happiness and I connect it to my true being, which is love. Now, if I were doing this and I were coaching my four-year-old self to do this, in this step, I would take a few moments or minutes if it's needed and I would have my four-year-old self coach my four-year-old self to remember the most safe, happy, loving memories that he can come up with. And what you said when we were starting the worksheet last time was that before your dad got home or came into the scene, you were very loved. Yes. I'm very close and loved by my mother. Then my dad comes in. And all of a sudden, okay. he's... But, but, but for now, focus on the mother, the feeling of being loved from your mother, and breathe into it and soften and strengthen it and coach your four-year-old self to feel that loving connection with mother. Okay. And, and, and create a little visualization here in step four where you change the energy in your heart space from this terror, abject terror and fear, to that loving energy, just by remembering how much your mother cares for you and some of the most loving memories you have from her. Yeah. Okay. And breathe into that and coach your four-year-old self to feel those feelings and let them run through your body like a loving, healing energy. Okay. And then just read the statement that says, I willingly go through the physical, mental, and emotional symptoms of healing. I willingly go through the physical, mental, and emotional symptoms of healing. 
See, what I have trouble with there is that beyond a four-year-old's thoughts. Right. Um, but you can coach him. You can coach him to just say, uh, "Yeah, we're going to be okay. Whatever happens, we're just going to stay together. You and right. I, the adult and the four-year-old." And the adult knows okay. that, you know, it, it may not be fun in the early stages, but we're going to stick together and ride through it. Okay, so we're going to be okay, little Timmy, you and I. Okay. That's what I needed with the translation of that to a four-year-old language. And, you know, I'm I'm going to be here with you. Yeah. And then step five says, I choose to love truth and to restore the condition of love to my mind. So what's a loving thought I can think toward Father? Um, I can feel love for him coming when I was older, and he was loved more loving then. But at that age, at four, I can't think of anything. Except maybe his smell. I can think of his smell, which was comforting. Okay. Sometimes when we um, do this, the closest we can get to a loving thought is just the statement, they're doing the best they can with whatever they have. It may not I be what I need. That. It may it, it may not be good for me right now, but it's the best he can do. Yeah, I can do that. Okay, do that one. Okay, he's doing the best he can do. Okay. And what's a loving thought about yourself that you can think as a four-year-old in this situation? I was cute. I was lovable. And when you think that thought, breathe into it and let it shift your energy again. And then take a breath. And now we come up with the goal. What is it you want from your father? I want him to love me the way my grandfather loved me, physically and unconditionally. Lots of physical affection. My maternal grandfather was wonderful. And that's what I compared my father to, and it was such a sharp Okay, so here you you, you would simply say, I want him to love me with warm physical affection. Yeah. And, you know, if it feels right, you could put words in there like comforting, safe, physical affection. Yeah. And then breathe and soften. And now seven says, I structure the realities in my mind, and I'm the cause of my pain. If I'm in pain, my thoughts are in error. 
And this is just a reminder. And you can just coach little Timmy that there's just a problem in the way we're thinking about this right now, and it's going to get better. We're going to make it better for ourselves by changing our thoughts. Yeah, right now, when I think about it, it seems like the thoughts of my father wanting me out of the house are so strong that I have a hard time thinking that's just my thought. As a little boy, exactly. Exactly. It is hard. It is hard. And this is a brand new concept, even for an adult, to say that my thoughts must be off the mark when I'm in pain. So it's absolutely understandable that your four-year-old is going to say, what do you mean? And then you just comfort him and say, we're just going to pretend this for now and watch what happens. Okay. Okay. All right. And now we're going to move on to step eight. It says, I accept responsibility and I release blame for this self-inflicted pain. And this is more for your adult self to say, Everything that's happening, and you can coach your four-year-old self to say, everything that's happening, every reality in my mind is changeable. So you say it to the four-year-old as everything that's happening can change. Okay. Okay, little and you're just everything to everything can change. Yep, you're just trying to comfort him and stay with him through this process. I reconnect to love, and I release the upset. So here again, you can just shift your thoughts over to your grandfather being loving. Take a breath and ease away from the thoughts of being right and how it's dangerous right now. Just focus on the grandfather thoughts, the loving thoughts. Okay. And then in number nine, it says, in order to collapse the active reality in my mind, I cancel and I let go of my goal for my dad. And then you just say the same words that you wrote down for the goal in number six. I had written down to love me like Papa does. So just say that. Cancel the goal and breathe and soften. And then 9B says I invite something outside myself, something outside my conscious logical mind. God, light, love, Holy Spirit, whatever you want to say there, yeah. to incline me toward yeah. healing, to restore me to, a, to, to my awareness of my nature as love, and to assist me in keeping love conscious, active, and present, and to help me let go of this painful reality. So what do you want to invite to help you do all of that? Gotti. I called God Gotti. 
when I was a little boy. Okay, so do that. I invite God. I invite in. help from God. To just help you feel better. If you're talking to the four-year-old, to let go of all of these negative thoughts and just feel better. So we're focusing on the love from Grandpa. We're focusing on the fact that there is a place, there is a part of your life where you are feeling loved even when you're four years old. There is some sense of safety there. You know that you're cute. You're focusing on the thought that Dad, even when he's angry and raging, is doing the best he can. And you're breathing and softening, and you're canceling your need to be right about having to leave the house to be safe. And breathe and soften, and just watch what happens. You be there coaching your four-year-old self to stay with those loving energies, the memory that Grandpa is there and he's loving, the thought that dad is just doing the best he can, he must be an upset, or he would do better, that his upset is not about you. All those thoughts, just breathe and soften and ask Gotti for help in releasing any negative thoughts and emotions. And just notice what happens. It's so hard to convince the four-year-old that the feelings of my dad are not directed at me. Right, but we're not trying to do that right now. We're just asking you to coach him to say, if we're here and we're focusing on the love that we get from Grandpa and we're focusing on the thought that we know we're cute and that some people really do find us lovable, and we're focusing on canceling our thoughts, canceling our goal for Dad to love us in a different way, and breathing and softening, and asking Gotti to help us. Just watch what happens. Because in this situation, your four-year-old has you, the adult, and has Gotti to help shift some energies. That's all we're trying to do. Okay. And remember this con- this gentle phrase that I, I have in the forgiveness pattern that I repeat over and over again. I cancel my need to be right. Who did that four-year-old grow up to be? Tim Bingham, right? Yeah. What did what did Tim what did Tim Bingham do for a career? He was a lawyer. He's a lawyer, right? And as you go through school and, and the further you go, the more you need to be right. You need to use your intellect. You have to figure things out. You have to come up with the right answers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's decades and decades of practicing, i got to be right. Yeah. 
Well, that began with the four-year-old who was bright, who wanted to use his intellect to figure things out, to get out of difficult situations. Right? And so that's why we want you to keep repeating, I cancel my need to be right. Because the intellect and everything that the four-year-old knows is not going to help him. It hasn't helped him for all these decades. It's not going to help him now. So you're there as the adult coaching him to just do something different for a change, just to play with it and see what happens. And one of the biggest things, even for the four-year-old, is to get him to sit back and relax and cancel his need to be right. We're agreeing with him that dad is angry. Right? We're we're confirm for him, yes, your dad is angry, your dad is yelling, your dad seems mean. And we're gonna ask you to cancel your need to think it's about you. That's all. And just breathe and soften. And ask for help from Gotti to do that. Connect with your your knowledge of your grandpa and his loving energy towards you. So just take a few moments to sit with the image of you and the four-year-old breathing and softening through this. And the only thing you're asking the four-year-old to let go of is the need to be right about how this is about him. You verify for him that, yes, Dad is angry. You verify for him that this would be scary for any four-year-old. And you have him breathe and soften and repeat over and over again, I cancel my need to be right that this is about me. And just stay with it for a little bit and then tell me what's happening for the four-year-old. If the four-year-old is having trouble with that, he's asking Gotti for help, but the but cancel my need to be right. He doesn't understand that. Okay. Well, let's leave it at that because this is a first attempt, right, for this four-year-old. You might have to do a whole bunch of worksheets with him at four years old from this trauma to get big shift. But let's leave it there and move on with the worksheet and see what happens. Okay. Okay. So take a breath and scan the four-year-old's body now and notice how he's feeling. Is he feeling more fearful or less fearful than when we started the worksheet? Less fearful. Okay. And if if at the beginning he was at a 9 or a 10 with that abject fear, yeah. what would it be now? A 6 or a 7. Okay. So breathe into that and put that, I now feel less fearful. Is there another word that the four-year-old might use? I feel more calm. I feel more safe. What would what would, the, would go there in number 10? Um, he would say okay or um, not okay. So I'd say I feel pretty much okay. All right, so put that in there. 
and I, if there's any kind of a shift, what well here with what you just said, in ten, the second part of number ten, I would say, I would write the four-year-old has trouble thinking he's wrong about dad about dad's anger so he has trouble canceling his need to be right and that's all I'd put in in that second spot on 10 okay and then number 11 says I'm grateful and I choose humility and I choose to see the highest and best in you dad and I join with your true nature, and what is the loving goal you would offer your dad as a four-year-old? Well, the loving goal would be to be physically affectionate, to be loving. But, and... you, this is, but this is you toward, this is the four-year-old toward dad. Yeah, I'd say, Dad, I need you to Hug me. No, no, not, not not dad I need from you. Dad, I'm going to give you hugs. Or dad, I'm going to give you hugs. I'm going to stay loving towards you even when you're angry. Okay. That kind of thing. Okay. And that's number 12, right? I acknowledge us for creating truth and perfect love. And the goal I create towards dad, as the four-year-old is, I'm going to choose to feel loving towards him and give him hugs. Even when he's angry. Well, that's hard. I'm going to Yeah, but you've got, you've, you've, got, you've got the adult there to to support you and coach you in doing that. Okay. The other thing you could do here is you could say, the loving goal I'm going to choose for you is I'm going to work with my adult self and do another worksheet. And maybe the next one I do is truly a child's worksheet instead of this teen adult worksheet. Is there a, a worksheet for small children? Well, there are younger ones, right? There is the work it out worksheet. One, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. And you would probably, if you're going to start, you know, if you're going to stay focused on the four-year-old, you might use one of those next time. So that's what you could put in the goal on this one. In number 12, I'm going to do a a work it out worksheet. Uh, One or two more. And that's a loving goal because the more you do those worksheets, the more you get to stay in the loving energy, the more you dismantle the fear. Does that 
make sense? Yeah. And you'll okay, have an easier thanks. time of it because you, you, you won't need as much translation from adult language to a child's language. Right. That's what had me stuck was the translation. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Tim. That's good. You're welcome. You're welcome and deserving. Any other comments? Or questions? It's it's so hard to go back that time and and change my perceptions of what was going on. It's so hard to move that off dead center. Right, and I wouldn't doubt it because it's been locked in your system for decades. Yeah. So remember remember how Michael Rice says when you get to one of your most important issues, whether you want to call it your core issue or some other word for it, you're going to have to do an infinite number of worksheets until it's complete. Yeah. You know, I had some things that went on in my life between me and my dad when I was three, four, five years old. And there were, you know, nothing as, um, nothing so much that most anybody watching from the outside would say this was bad or wrong or abusive. And yet I was looking for something from him that he couldn't give me. And so when I do this kind of work, it frequently goes back to three, four, five years old. And yeah. I just have to be willing to keep going back there and and do more worksheets or do more of the EFT tapping or have the, the, the neuro-emotional technique that I do, have people do that with me, and just be completely willing, oh, there it goes again, it's back to three or four or five years old. Without judging... Yep that that's good or bad or right or wrong. That's just what's happening. Yeah. And that's and that's what I would encourage you to do here. You can do this worksheet again with some of the modifications we've done in the language, or you can go to the, the Work It Out worksheets, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, the more childlike, simplified format, and do several more of those and then if you're still not getting a shift then give us a call again and we can discuss what you might need to do to to break the log jam so to speak okay okay will do thank you well you're very welcome thank you we'll be happy to help you with follow up questions if you've done some other worksheets on the Okay. On the whyagain.org worksheet page on the Work It Out worksheet for the younger ages, and feel free to keep us posted. Okay. Thanks. You're very welcome and deserving. Blessings. So we have plenty of time for comments and questions. 563-999-3581. Call that number. Press 1 on your phone. 
and let us know how this is landing for you. This is um, the second time Tim has called in to do processing on this kind of work. He called in um, on the 10th, which was um, just last week. And we did a processing of the Diedrich Wolzak worksheet. And now he's called in and we've done the teen work it out teen adult worksheet. And for those who may not know, this whyagain.org website has a whole host of worksheets. Um, there's from the book Healing Children, Loving Children by Julie Haverstick, the Work It Out worksheet number one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven, the teen adult 12-step worksheet that we just did, an 11-step long-form worksheet. Julie also has a nine-step wake-up sheet adaptation. And um, she did a pay-it-forward program where she was encouraging people to show up and work for the restoration of Heartland. And she donated her time to work with people online. And when she was doing that, she was using uh, an 11-step worksheet that she adapted. So, so. What are your comments? What are your questions? How can we support you? We've got about 17 minutes left in our first hour. And as we mentioned last week, the second hour is going to be a continuation of Aramaicisms that was recorded back in 2015, I believe, with Michael Rice and Dale Allen Hoffman. And that's basically a gift that Michael and Jeannie are giving people because it used to be that the only way to get access to that was to pay for the DVD. And now after today and tomorrow, all four hours will be in the archives for repeated access. Right before... Tim Bingham raised his hand, I was talking about how as I reviewed last year, 2022's readings of the Way of Mastery with Commentary, I was struck by how there are different aspects of the reading that jumped out at me and that I was focusing on last year compared to this year. And those files, even though they're not in the most easily accessible page, they're still available on the MindShiftersAcademy.org website. And I extend the invitation to anybody who's listening to, you know, listen to what we're talking about as we're reading and doing commentary on lesson one or two or three, and um, compare it to what was done back in 2022 and bring your comments and questions. Maybe it strikes you as as though the reading is um, 
saying something different instead of just highlighting a different portion. Maybe it it strikes you that uh, I'm misinterpreting. And um, as always, we're wide open to those kinds of comments, questions. It's the lifeblood of almost every highlight show that someone has called in like Tim Bingham just did and or they've raised a question or a comment or they've made an observation and that's what leads to better and better understanding of this work at deeper and deeper levels. So if nobody raises a hand, we've got a little bit of time. We might continue a little bit of the lesson two. And um, lesson two basically is trying to get us to understand or at least open our minds to the possibility and then till the soil a little bit. So this might sink in deeper and deeper. You create your experience. And the idea is that since you decree what is for you, the text reads, I would ask that you now begin to put this into practice. So wherever you have wherever you happen to be stop for just a moment and truly become aware of where you are where are you you're ex- having the experience of seemingly being within a body maybe you're in a room somewhere maybe you're out in the outdoor there's weather patterns going on around you There are sounds coming in your ears. Can you truly be aware of where you are right now? Can you feel the weight of your body as you stand upon your feet or sit within your chair? Do you notice, is there any tension in your neck? Do you notice, is there the racing in the mind? Can you begin to bring awareness to exactly what is? And bring that awareness from a place of innocence and acceptance. You have a saying in your world, quote, it is what it is. This work would have you understand that that is the beginning of wisdom. And you will discover that what is is what you have chosen to make of it. Be therefore right now, right where you are, and deliberately decide. Deliberately decide to accept completely that what you are experiencing in this very moment has no cause whatsoever except your choice to experience it. Rest assured, whatever the mind may try to say, 
if you did not completely want to be right where you are, you would not be there. If you are in a body in the field of space and time, rest assured, you desired it, you chose it, and it is here. Clearly, not your conscious logical self. This is saying there's more to you than meets your own eye. There's more to you from your capital S self, your higher self, your spiritual self, than your conscious logical mind or your ego or your physical memories can tell you. Rest assured, whatever your mind may try to tell you, your higher self wants you to be here or you wouldn't be here. If you're in a body in the field of space and time, rest assured, some part of you desired it, some part of you chose it, and it is here. Begin here. There's no need to judge it, no need to ask it to be different. Just truly be aware of what is in this moment. If you're feeling the body sitting in a chair, allow this thought to come into the mind. Quote, I have literally created this experience. Something within me is so grand, so powerful, so vast, so beyond anything that scientists have ever come up with. I have literally crystallized into the field of experience an awareness of being a body in space and time. It has come forth from the field of my consciousness. It is the gift to me of the Creator who asks only that I learn to create as the Creator creates. So, this is quite the challenge. But again, what we talk about in this works in so many different ways is that the number one bottom line observation is if whatever I'm doing isn't working, I should feel free to try something else. And most of us will say, this sounds absurd. I don't like this, that, or the other thing that's happening. I would never choose this. I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. How absurd for you to say some part of me wants to be here in this current situation. And yet, if it's a new thought, if it's radically different, might it be worth trying it out? At least it's not the same old thing. At least it's not continually repeating what can't change if I've done it, you know, 17 different times before, always getting the same result. Why not play with these ideas? Why not test it out? Why not pretend there's a deep truth being shared here and that my experience might shift and change dramatically if I just try it on? pretend is true 
what if there's a, a, a larger part of me, the seed of the soul, my consciousness, as this work says in a number of different ways, that that part of my, my soul that is resting right alongside the mind of the creator when it decides to create the experience of being in a body. What if I just play with that? What if I imagine that's the case and then watch what's mine to do next? My offering is it's worth the experiment. And if you're at the place in your life where it seems like it's not worth the experiment, then be okay with that. Just understand that it it may be possible that at some point in the future you are willing to try an entirely different perspective. Hopefully this is a a very a radically new perspective for a lot of people. And in that process of trying that radically new perspective, perhaps, just perhaps, you get a, a glimpse of a wide range of possibilities that you hadn't thought of before. Possibilities for creating a different experience in your own life even before the external situations in your life begin to change. The work with Abraham is constantly trying to get people to go for the feeling. Create the feeling you want when things change the way you want them to be. You you want a different job. You want a different relationship. You want a better stereo or a different car. You want more money in your bank account. Tap into the idea of how how that will feel when that happens and find a way to create that feeling before that happens. And then once you've created that feeling, if you still desire that change of finance, of job, of relationship, then go get it. Because once you acquire that, you will understand that the good feeling that you have inside of you is not dependent upon keeping or maintaining that change. If you don't do it in that order, what happens is you go out and acquire something, you get that temporary good feeling, and then you instantly have to fear, "Uh uh-oh, what if I lose this thing? What if it slips out of my grasp? And as Guy Finley points out, it's absolutely bizarre to think that what I'm acquiring is in one moment responsible for my good feelings and my happiness, and in the next moment is the cause of my fear. These teachings would have us understand that we create our own experience internally, and the more we're willing to play with that and practice it, and get better at actively choosing it, the better our lives can be, independent of the outside circumstances. So that's our first hour today. I will come.
come back again tomorrow. The second hour is the third segment of the Beatitudes. And this segment is only about 40 minutes long, so I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. This is your second hour. Mark, how are you, sir? I'm all right today. <laughs> Sweet. Well, we uh, we used yesterday to do a totally different topic, so that was perfect. And uh, so here we are back looking at the Beatitudes. And uh, it, it's been a fun discussion. That was not the right file. This is Aramaicism's part three, and it's 59 minutes. I was going to say, in Tuvehun, and I'm going to come back to that, that word there for poor, we've got ripe, which is tuv. The E-Y sound genders this word feminine, the same as the ta at the end of a lot of words. And what that means is something that is a latent or you could say um, a potentiality becomes activated is the best way you can put that in modern English. And then the hun at the end means all of you who. And you know, there's one thing that's intriguing in the Beatitudes that if you don't read Aramaic, you, can't under, you won't see it. You won't see it in Greek. You won't see it in English. Is all but one of, well, actually, what? Eight Beatitudes, he says, tuve hun, which means all of you here. One of the Beatitudes, he says, tuve kun, which means that he looked at one person and said it directly to that person, intriguingly. And then there's another one that actually doesn't have Tuve Hun in the beginning of it. But I'm, I'm doing this in English so you'll see it. Uh, if you look at the back, grab my business card back on the CD table and flip it, although you won't be able to pick the, it out, but I can point it to you, I actually show a copy from the ancient Aramaic Kaboris manuscript that shows two little dots that basically show up right here between what in English is the M and the S. Now what's intriguing is the reason that this Aleph, Beit, this uh, Estrangella style of writing was written was because prior to that point they didn't use phonetic markings to record the teachings of Jesus, meaning no vowel sounds. And they had big problems with that because without vowel sounds the word changes. Okay? Now if you have M-S-K-N together, let me hear you pronounce that M-S-K-N as a word. Every single person in here said miskin. Okay? Now, when you put those there, it changes it from miskin to maskin. Now, let's talk about that just for a second. This is just the first beatitude. Now, there's two sets of meanings. Actually, there's a couple different meanings that all really mean the same thing. Miskin. Now, we've got poor. Miskin, if you have it with that flat I sound, miskin means poor as in lacking. When Yeshua would talk about give your stuff to the poor, he would say miskin, M-S-K-N in English. And that's what you say naturally without a phonetic marking. But when you add that into maskin, this is what that means, okay? Let's say you've got a wallet and you've got $6,000 in it and you've just got here to America and you have no job and your country is in civil war and your family was killed off and here you are, all, everything you own is in this wallet. You don't even have a suitcase and you're standing in New York City in the middle of the night in an alley, the same alley that you heard the crack a couple minutes ago, and all of a sudden a guy comes up behind you and grabs it. someone grabs the $6,000 out, and you turn, and he's way too far. You can't catch him. He's already turned the corner. You don't even know where he is. Every single possession that I had is now gone. I'm what? I'm poor. But I want to give you what that means in Aramaic, rather than poor as in lacking. 
I've got a wallet and I've got $6,000 in it and I open it up and I take that $6,000 out and I put it in my pocket. The wallet is now what? Empty. Everybody breathing? Empty in spirit. Which means not poor as in lacking, but empty as in open. That word empty, masculine, also means home or sanctuary. The word spirit in Aramaic is rucha. Spirit is a concept that the first century Aramaic mind would have had no clue what it meant. It's a Latin term. Spiritus is a Latin word that's gendered masculine, meaning that it's a physical thing. And we spend our lives trying to find spirit, yet again, in the words of St. Francis, what you are looking for is what is looking. Spirit and or breath in Aramaic, rucha, is feminine. Not poor in spirit, but empty and open and home in breath, spirit, energy, magnetism, cosmic expansion, the eternal forces of the one. Now going even deeper in this, being feminine, it means this as well. In, what do I feel on my arm right now? That's what? Breath, right? In John 3, Nicodemus and Yeshua are having a conversation and Yeshua says you must be reborn of water and spirit is what we're told in the King James. Now, intriguingly in Aramaic, what he says is maya and rucha. Maya, water, literally does not mean simply water. It means the great flowing expanse. It's at the end of Shemaya, which is the word heaven, which is also the word sky. And rucha, he wouldn't have said breath and spirit. He probably would have gone breath or, or water and spirit. He would have said water, maya, and... Because in the first century, spirit and breath were not two separate things. Spirit didn't exist in their mind because what we now think of as spirit as separate from breath at that time was simply rucha, which is breath. Now let me say one more thing. In the first century Aramaic mind, what you feel on your arm, that's spiritus, that's a masculine physical thing that we now call breath. Is everybody breathing? In Aramaic, it wasn't what I felt on my arm that was breath. That's hot air. In the first century Aramaic mind, Breath was not the hot air that moved through my lungs. It was my feminine perception of its movement. It wasn't a thing. It was the experience of this. That's what rucha is. And when you're empty in the expansion and the contraction of breath, spirit, energy, insight, growth, whatever it may be, that's what it meant. It didn't mean hot air on your arm. Is everybody clear? That's why we're out there looking for spirit. And as an example, I asked the question, will science ever find God? People are like, oh yeah, the super string theories and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that's interesting. Because quantum theory says that as you observe, you create. Which means that whatever they're finding is them. And what they're not realizing is they're looking for what's looking. What they're looking for is what is looking. God is not thing, God. And that's a concept in Aramaic that it doesn't exist in Christianity. Allah, the word for God in Aramaic, means absolute only being. Interesting. You've got the ah sound, which is Allah, which means everything, lamid, which means movement, and ha, which means breath. The one lives and breathes within itself. Allah. And that's you. Is everybody breathing? 
If you ever feel like you're not getting something, let go of trying to understand it and just keep your breath moving. And what needs to happen will happen. If you look at that Pentecostal experience where all kinds of awesome things happened and the tongues of fire upon their heads, the Greeks tell us that Yeshua breathed on them. It's not what it says. It says he breathed them. He showed them how to stay connected to that one holy breath. And you'll watch people in trauma, and the first thing that they do is cut themselves off from that whole breath. And when they cut themselves off, they literally cut themselves off from the eternal forces. Now they're locked within their own parameters. That is, what is their life experience and what's in their genes. You look at that story about the sins of the fathers are passed into three and four generations. What are they talking about? They're talking about the energy patterns. And when we're locked in, you know, the sins of the Father are passed the answer three and four generations. Anybody remember the second half of that passage? It says, yea, of those who hate me. It's not hate in terms of a love-hate relationship. It's those who are separated from the active presence of love in which we live, move, and have our being. And the way you separate yourself from it is by holding your breath. How many people remember them telling stories about you when you were two and you'd hold your breath until you turned blue and passed out? I've run into hundreds of people that that's been their experience. And they spend most of their lives cut off from that flow that's designed to come through them. And they live in this intellect, in this nine-bit mind. Don't disturb my state of belief because I already know. If you're in pain, you don't know you would have a much more accurate understanding of first century Aramaic teachings if you were to take the Jesus teachings and just pencil out the word spirit and write the word breath above it. If you do that, just try it with one of those green Bibles, the Gideon Bibles you get you know, either on the urinals or in the, the drawer of the, the hotel room and cross out spirit and write breath above it. Now, this is that phrase from, is it John 20, 22, uh, Jesus breathed on them. This is great theology because Jesus has all the power, just like Horus and all the ancient Egyptian guys and Dionysus and Osiris and Mithra. Napak lahun. If it said this, I'm doing this in English so you'll see it a little more clearly. This lamed, which is this, I told you it means movement. It means on, toward, or at. Now this is something that uh, in modern Aramaic scholarship a lot of them don't even know when, that these two, somewhere around 1,700 years ago, became interchangeable, the lamed and the bait, in terms of a prefix. This means on, toward, or at, the la sound. So if it was napak lahun, it would be he breathed on them, or at them, or toward them. But what it actually says in Aramaic is napak bahun. Now, bah means with, within, or through. Not he breathed at them, on them, or toward them, but he breathed with them. He breathed them through. That's a whole different thing. Not him having power that he breathes on them, but what happens. This is after the resurrection and he's standing in front of them, if that actually happened. I'm pretty sure that if a guy that I knew all of a sudden and I saw hanging on a cross and I saw his dead body and all of a sudden he's standing in front of me, I'd probably stop breathing. I don't know if I would today. Uh, but, you know, I definitely, I would say the average person would probably catch at least a little bit if there's like, a, well, like I said about Minnie Pearl earlier, if Minnie Pearl walked in the back door, I probably would do a little bit of a, you know. Uh, so, 
Are you getting what I'm saying here? This is about... What's your relationship <laughs> with Minnie Pearl here? I love Minnie Pearl. How? <laughs> we are in the South, aren't we? You see the difference here? Now, here's the, what are the problems here is, the one problem we've got is that in modern Semitic scholarship, it's not even acknowledged that these two had separate meanings with, within, or through versus on, toward, or at. So if a modern, many Aramaic or Semitic-based scholars translate, they don't know the actual first century difference between the two, and they become interchangeable. And all of a sudden, the message changes entirely, just because of a single letter. Has anybody here ever been with someone the last 48 hours of their life when they were experiencing a non-crisis death? Anybody ever been with somebody? What did they do in the last 24 to 48 hours? They started to breathe like this. They connected in a whole breath, and then they'd hit a place called a still point, where they'd stop breathing altogether for a minute, two minutes, three minutes, until their lips start to turn blue. And then they'd go back, and they'd do that breath. I think that the person who's getting ready to leave their bodies intuitively knows they need to reconnect in order to process out the garbage that they're carrying with them and not have to take it with them. We're looking at the, and clarifying the original Aramaic terms in the teachings of the man named Yeshua in particular, although not exclusively, in order to understand a thought system and a healing system that is disappearing from the planet. And we're looking to restore that first century thought system that has just had such longevity, even in distorted forms, that when we get back to the original, it just opens a whole different game. So we're delighted that you're here. And uh, Dale Allen Hoffman uh, is a local Aramaic scholar, probably the most practical scholar on the planet that I know of anyway. And he's going to open with the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. And to set the tone. We did this, anybody here last night? Uh, I'm going to come down here. What we're going to do is we're going to tone a sound together, which is the first word of the Lord's Prayer in a far eastern dialect. If you're in the west, it sounds more like abvun or abvunach, depending on where you are. If you go further into the east, it starts sounding more like awun or aun. We're going to do the aun sound. Say that once, aun. Aun. It's kind of like om, but there's an N at the end. Say that one more time. Aun. Now, I'm going to tone this sound one time so you know what I mean by toning without talking about toning a lot. Uh, toning is essentially, just as a quick description, uh, you're basically taking a sound that's normally sacred. Really, it could be any sound. It doesn't even have to be a word. And you're elongating the vowel sounds and allowing it to come through as deeply as you can in the present moment. It's not singing or performance. It's different. This isn't about having a great quality voice. It's just about having an open quality heart and presence in the moment, and the sound will take care of itself. So I'll tone one time, and then we're going to do this together three times, and then I'm going to go into the prayer, okay? And I'm just going to go into the prayer in Aramaic tonight rather than also English, okay? And you'll understand after this. You'll feel it. You'll feel why I did this to begin, okay? So just listen to this first tone. Oh, 
remember the N, which is the letter Nun, at the end of the word, because all you're going to be doing from that ooh is just taking the tip of your tongue and resting it on the back of your upper teeth. Mm. Remember that sound. Don't forget that one, okay? So let's do Aun three times. this last one ring out, okay, wide open, far beyond the expanse of this beautiful building. Last one. Oh. Now just be aware of your breath and be open. Abund Voshmaya Nitkadash Shmoth Tete Malku Toch Nehwe Tivyanak Aikana Voshmaya Ap Bearea Hablan Lachmadasun Kanan Yomana Washwoklan Hobain Wok Dahain Aikana Dabhanan Shwakan Lachayavain Huela Tahlan Lenesiune Ela Petsan Minbisha Metul Didelaki Malkuthach Wahel Wateshbukta La Alam Amen. Amen. From this rooted earth may all my actions flow. And so it is. Sweet. Thank you. One of the uh, most basic teaching of so much of the Western world is that there's something for you to fear. And it's the ever-present Almighty that if you do some sort of an offense, then you're going to be punished for eternity. And so we hear an interpretation in the Greek translations, and if you look at the Greek gods, the Greek gods were all about control and fear and, you know, I mean, the atrocities they committed are amazing, and that's been transferred into the Aramaic meanings, and we're told to fear love. The traitor is love. And if you look at how bizarre a concept that is, you look back into the Old Testament, it says, Fear is a commandment of men. Men made that whole game up. And you've got to start to question. You've got to come out of insane belief systems 
in order to truly function as a full human being. And the word that is in place of that fear is really to have awe. And there's some interesting research that's come out of Stanford recently where they're researching the impact of awe on people. And what they're finding is that when people go into awe, when, when they can't process with their minds the way they normally do, and they are awestruck, that it transforms everything in them. It literally transforms their psychological state. It transforms their, the state of their health. It transforms everything. And so, what is this state of awe? What, what do you want to, how do you move into that state of awe? And what's it really all about? Is it about doing the right thing for the wrong reason because we've been told if we don't do it, we're going to be punished? No, that's a thing called propitiation. T.S. Eliot gives us a, a really easy way to understand that word, which is not very popular in our culture. And he's got a poem where he says, "'Tis the highest treason to do the right thing for the wrong reason." And you look at people who've been trained through fear, and they continuously work to do the right thing, not realizing that every time they work to do the right thing, they in fact are resonating a disease within their own cellular structures by doing the right thing. Trained through fear, fear being in the cell, fear being a disease to the cell, one acts through fear and ends up destroying themselves, wondering where all these horrible diseases come from when the root of the disease process is in the training of fear. And so Dale's going to talk about the I am and what that really means and how awesome it is when you understand it from the Aramaic. Hmm. One thing that I think a lot of people have heard is Moses in that burning bush, and the I am that I am, which could be translated from Hebrew as I shall be that I shall be, I am becoming that I am becoming, I am flowering that I am flowering, I am fractally expanding that I am fractally expanding. Uh, Yeshua used a different word when he was talking about I am. One of the questions I get asked the most in the last 20 years is, all right, hold on a second, I get everything else you're saying, but there's one hook I still have. Usually it's John 3.16 is one. We might get to that one a little later. But the thing I get asked the most is, what about when he says, I am the bread of life, or I am the way and the truth and the life, or uh, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, all these different places. Uh, all of those actually in the Gospel of Johannan, John, incidentally, um, I put these up here on the board before we began, just thinking as an experiment, maybe it would burn its way through the board or something. It didn't. Uh, this is something that's so easy and clear to understand, and it's literally not possible uh, to understand except from the Aramaic perspective. It's not that it couldn't be said in another, in another language, but something I talked of yesterday is there's a, there's a big danger in translation without experience. And when I say experience, I don't mean past experience. I don't mean having 30 years behind you with translation. I mean open experience now in the moment. Without Gilyana, the revelation, the unveiling, there's no chance of you really bringing something through because it's only going to come through in the perspective of what your mind can hold or handle or comprehend. And any translation is going to be a dumbing down it's just the way it goes. Uh, this is something that's so easy to understand. 
right here, it's got three letters, Alep, Nun, Alep. Sounds like this, Anna, Anna. So if anybody knows the name Anna, someone with the name Anna, this is what Anna means, I. Okay? I. Um, it could also mean I am, but this is, look, this is very, it's a very specific, it only has one meaning, which is either I as in I Dale or I Dale M. If I'm going to walk across the room, I would say Anna. Technically, let me put it this way, in Aramaic, it tends to most often be pronounced, even though you can see that it's the same ah, mm, ah, you can see that it looks like Anna, it tends to be pronounced as Ana or Ina, okay? or even inna. I'm going to show you why. Well, I don't know exactly how the connection happened, but I'm going to show you why that is in a few minutes, okay? It's something that's going to be more important after you see what I'm going to unpack here. Now, ina, ina, ana. This sound, if I, Dale, was going to do something, like I say, I would say, ana, going to walk across the room. You got that? Very clear. If Yeshua was saying, as an example, ana, nuhra, deyalma, I, Jesus, am the light of the world, nuhra, deyalma, the light of the world, or the light of creation. There's so many ways you can translate alma. Uh, he would say, ina, nuhra, deyalma, I, Jesus, am the light of the world. But what's really intriguing is that in Aramaic, what's written on the page is actually this two times, not once. Now, you're about to learn a lesson in translation. If one ina means I, what would two enas mean? Us, we. Anything else? Who said it? I, I. Anything other than I, I would change its meaning. It's adding something that's not on the page. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you were to put two eyes next to each other and say we, in truth, what you're doing is changing what is written on the page. What would be literal is I, I, okay? Now, this, there's a quote that I gave a couple of times last night from St. Francis, take a breath. St. Francis of Assisi said, what you are looking for is what is looking. Not everybody's going to pick that up. If you're trying to understand it, you have 0% chance of understanding it. If you take a breath and let go, it's your only chance of getting that one. If you felt like a, even you don't quite get what I just said, then you got it, okay? So, I inside of the I, the I within the I, not the physical I, something behind the physical eyeball, but as an example, when you look in the mirror, that which is observing that reflection in the mirror is understanding that that's simply a reflection. The reflection is not what's real, nor is what it's reflecting. The only thing that is real is the observation or the awareness itself. Okay? I need you to breathe. Now, intriguingly, when you look at it like this, the eye within the eye, a good example of what eye within the eye is, we talked a lot about babies and holding a baby in the first 20 minutes of life. That's inana, eye, eye. Now that I say inana, even though it looks like Anna, Anna on the page, the way we pronounce this is, in Aramaic, Inanna. One of them is masculine. Masculine meaning it's me, physical person. When you've got two together, it's a feminine phrase. 
which means not a person or a thing, but rather a state of being and experience. Incidentally, Inanna is the ancient Sumerian goddess of love, fertility, and warfare. Inanna is what most of the Christian teachings are actually based on, the ancient Sumerian goddess. Most of the earliest Christian teachings are about goddess energy. They're about feminine energy. They're not about masculine things. Misogynists change those over time. Misogynist means literally woman haters. Okay. Now, if you've ever listened to Bob Marley, you know, uh, oh pirates, yes they rob I, sold I to the merchant ship. Minutes after they took I, one of the ways you can understand that is I. And in Aramaic, I'm going in this direction. Okay, it's the I within the I. Pirates, yes they rob I. I am projected into this world, though I am not of it. You getting what I'm saying? It's about the awareness behind who you think you are. It's about consciousness itself. That's the bread of life. That's the resurrection and the life. That's the light of the world. And what sees through me is what sees through you. If you were to actually imply that a man was any of those things that Christianity has done today, you committed a blasphemy, you turned his teachings 180 degrees exactly opposite, and you kill the message. Imagine this. Imagine that we've got one singular body of God. And let's just, you know, when we think cosmos or universe or multiverse, I'm talking everything, whether it's manifest or non-manifest. Does it make a lot of sense, even looking at it this way would be even better, does it make a lot of sense with one singular light that manifests itself in billions of human bodies, would it make any sense whatsoever to point at one of those lights and say that one of those lights is better than the others? One of those is only begotten. One of those is the bread of life. Is there any sense in that whatsoever? It's not the light on the board that's the light of the world. It's light itself. Do you, do you feel that? Do you sense it? If you're trying to understand this, you have 0% chance. If you, as I said in the beginning, if you take a breath, keep your breath moving and allow your heart to be open and you feel that movement of the spirit, then you've got it. Everybody's had those moments in meditation, music, holding a baby in your arms where everything just works out just right and you're in that divine balance and it's almost as if you're the witness or you're observing your human life, that's what he was talking about. Interesting. It changes all of those completely, totally and completely. That's the light of the world. And we could spend five hours going through all of those phrases. So, Well, it's interesting that uh, the only thing that changed was the pronoun when he said to those before him, you are the light of the world. If you choose to step into that being within, you know, and it ties in with the idea of, which to the average person doesn't make any sense, in order for you to live, you've got to die. Well, when we get lost, as we talked about yesterday, in this carbon-based memory system, we literally build information into the mind based on messages that come from the world of hostility or fear, and those messages that come from the world of hostility or fear tend to drag us out of the state of being, hold the newborn child, you've got the active presence of love, you have this state of being that we all started as, 
And when we started there, the world did its best to drag us into those messages. And these messages, based on a world of hostility and fear, solidified or coagulated into a picture in the mind that most people call I. They fell from grace, and they became identified with this. The moment of the deepest pain and the deepest rage that anyone will ever experience, and a moment that has to be worked back through. So when Yeshua is saying, in order for you being to live, you non-being have to die. This self has to go. And this is the I behind what we call I. And that tends to get lost. Mm. Is there anybody that doesn't get it right now? I, don't, I haven't asked many questions the last couple of nights. It's okay if you raise your hand. Here's the thing. If you were trying to grok it and understand it, and you have no clue what I just said, it's because it's the reflection that's trying to understand. It's your human eye that's trying to understand. And the whole point of the entire passage of those passages is that it doesn't happen here. It's where it's projecting from. You know, Michael's got a great analogy that he uses a lot of times where, uh, take a, let's just as an example, say you're in a, a, some sort of a projection booth movie, movie theater and you take some guy out of the jungle and you've got an apple sitting on a table and it's projecting on a screen and the, you take this guy from the jungle into this room, he's never seen a projector before, he's never seen a movie and you, he sees that apple there and you tell him, move the apple from this side to that side. Where's he going to go to move the apple? He's going to go into the world. He's going to go to the screen, the projection. And yet, Yeshua walks back in the projection booth, or the, the, the projectionist walks back into the projection booth, moves the apple, comes back out from that space within, and all of a sudden the apple's moved, and everybody goes, oh my God, holy Messiah, you've created miracles. When all he did was work within the system. It's one thing about... Imagine this, let me put it, this is from Yogananda, he says, well, let me preface it with James Allen. James Allen says, what then is the meaning of fighting against circumstances? It is when one is continually revolting against an effect without, while all the while he is nourishing its cause in his heart. And another one from Yogananda says, when man transfers his sense of identity from his pseudo-soul or ego or mask or persona back to the true light of his being, he will realize that all pain is unreal. Suffering ceases to exist for one who is pure. And when we learn to view the scenes of the divine play of what we call the world, what Yeshua called the cosmos, he said, I come to destroy the world. You know what the word world is in Greek? Cosmos. I come to destroy the cosmos. Did he speak Greek? No. You know what that word is in Aramaic? Alma. Remember, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the cosmos. Hmm, interesting. And I came to destroy that. And Yogananda said, to be able to joy, to be able to view this lila or divine play, the maya, that, that world of liquid illusion, as the ever joyous witness of a stupendous cosmic drama. And that's that. It's taking your identity away from the echoes of your hidden past and coming back to the light of your being. How do you do that? You practice forgiveness. Removing the root of your suffering. And one of the number one pseudo-solutions of what we'll call the non-being mind, this is a state of non-being. It's a total fabrication. And, and as Dale said, if you're trying to understand from that, 
That non-being self can't understand everything, though it pretends life. It pretends existence, and all it is is a projection from a set of brain cells based in hostility, fear, and pain. That's why most relationships based in that end up in divorce. Because one who's not willing to be responsible for their hostility, their fear, or their pain ceases to be the light in their own lives and certainly ceases to be a light in that relationship. When two people really connect in true relationship, each of them begins to bypass this self that isn't, the self that can't understand anything, and be the light for each other, and in so doing forms literally a new energy, a new creation as such that was called the Pagra. The joining of two in that light forms a third entity. And so that third entity doesn't come from this state of non-being. And one of the number one pseudo-solutions, in one of our workshops we, we go through what I call the pseudo-solutions of the non-being mind, and the number one pseudo-solution is, if I could just figure this out. Now, if we took everybody in the room and wrote down your age and added it all up and subtracted five years for every person in the room, we'd have the number of years that people in this room have been trying to figure it out. And if you notice, you can't figure it out. <laughs> but here's what you can do and why Dale says forgive is the key. Because each time that you forgive, you literally remove, substitute. When you think actual forgiveness, substitute the word remove for forgive. And forgiveness means I remove this rage. I remove this fear. I remove this sadness. I remove this pain. I forgive this rage, this guilt. And, and think about what it's like to come into the world. You know, we asked the question last night, how many have held a newborn child? Describe the newborn, and everybody's descriptor is some variation on the theme of love. Why? Because everybody knows what human life is. When human life fuels your cellular structure, your physiology is in ecstasy. Is in that state continuously. Think about what it would be like for a child two, three, four, six, ten months, twelve months, fifteen months of age to all of a sudden have received so many messages from the world that they are something other than the presence of love. Anybody ever get a message from your power person that you were something other than love? We had a woman, we, we asked this question, we're not going to do a, a dialogue or interaction on it, but we asked a woman a couple of years, or a, a group a couple of years ago, and this woman came forward, and she shared that when she was six years of age, her father came to her and told her that until she was born into the family, they had the perfect family. And when she was born into the family, she destroyed the family. Now think about what that kind of a message, when a child doesn't know how to refuse it, buys that message and forms a self out of it, that the mind actually takes all of those messages, and one of the things the human mind does is it converts information into pictures. It goes from digital to analog. So once we accept a certain amount of incorrect information about ourselves, then the mind starts to generate this picture of who we think we are. 
Imagine the pain that would be experienced by someone who started out at conception, has been fueled by love up until the age of 12, 14, 16 months, whatever, two years, three years, four years, and all of a sudden, that is ecstasy is ripped away from them. And this true self goes blotto. And this self takes over. You have some reason why we have, or you get some insight, when you realize that's what virtually all of us have gone through. You get some insight as to why the world is so insane. Why there is such hatred and rage and murder. Because the pain of that moment is beyond comprehension. And it is a pain that each of us has to work our way back through. And the way that you work back through it, the key tool, and without this tool, whatever you're engaging in, whatever you're studying, you know, there are lots of interesting things in the world. But if it isn't showing you how to remove the lies that were planted into your mind, the lies that were resonated out of your genetics by those lies, if it isn't showing you how to forgive those things, to remove them, and ultimately collapse this non-being self so that the, the, the non-being self dies and the true self comes into existence, then that teaching, whatever it is, is like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Who cares? The ship's going down. You know, you may be a little closer to the band and so you hear the music better. You may get to the far end of the ship so you're the last one whose toes hit the icy cold water, but the ship's on its way down. Whatever you engage in, engage in understanding how to remove the root of all hostility and fear so that the self that is not dies. And the true being that you are once again incarnates or comes back to habit this form and become the light of the world. Become the light in relationship. If we're in relationship and Dale gives me the look and up comes my terror and I don't know how to hold love present for that, I don't know how to heal that, then I can turn to this person I have a power with and say, I need support and Dale can become the light that supports my healing and vice versa. So when we become that for each other in relationship rather than you know, if I'm in pain and I resonate Dale's pain, so Dale gets lost in his and I get lost in mine, and now we've got a shamazel, we've got a mess. It's the official word, shamazel. Shamazel, yeah, it's an official. Yeah, it's a mirror make word. <laughs> Maybe, as it could be, it sounds like it, actually. <laughs> so, when we can be that light for each other, the eye within the eye, then something different happens. And it transforms everything. And it moves into that state of a state that's so far beyond comprehension of this carbon-based memory system that we talked about yesterday. A state that's just so far beyond it that it's not even conceivable. And what happens when that I comes present, whether it's presenced by someone else or whether you're able to bring your own I present, 
then that state of awe is created and that energy begins to transform everything within you that is not like itself. That's what I understand Stanford is talking about when they're talking about how transformative that state of awe is. When your brain can't process it the way it normally does, it opens. And what opens in the presence of awe heals. And it heals instantly. And that's what, if you go back to Yeshua, again, 2,000 years ago, I come to bring you life, and more abundantly. There is no life in the body of its own unless it is plugged into the power supply it's designed for. My take is that the average person, as a human being, as love, is dead by the age of four. Think about when the stress is up and the chips are down, the child, how many know of a child at four or five or six or 10 or 12 or 20 or 50 or 70 or 90 that stays present as love to the experience that is stressful for them? If you can't do that, then those stressful experiences bring up that non-being self that obliterates human life. Yeshua says, I come to bring you life. He didn't come to bring you fear about what God's going to do to you. I come to bring you life and bring it more abundantly and to show you how to incarnate that life by removing everything that doesn't belong. You must forgive from your heart that is your own unconscious, that which you put into your brain's image of yourself and that which you put into your brain's image of your brother. And you think you feel what your brother did to you, but what you really feel is what's going on inside of you resonated by your brother. And when your brother comes and gives you the gift of rage, of hostility, of fear, and that resonates rage or hostility or fear in you, they've given you the gift to recognize that if that's the energy that's moving in you, then you'll paint pictures on the inside of your eyeballs based in rage and fear. And when you do, you give up your human life. And you spray the energy of that hostility and fear on everybody that you look at. When you begin to remove those things, then that darkness is replaced by the truth of your being, of light. And when that happens, everything that you paint on the inside of your eyeballs, every construct that your mind makes is based in love and therefore sprays light on the world and transforms everything that happens. If we can get enough people through the gate of understanding and doing that work, and that's the challenge. Doing the work, right? Mm. What? Yes. Mm. Me? I have to change something? <laughs> you know, uh, there's a couple of things you said that were so rich that, uh, well, in intriguingly, the word awe is interesting because we've got that word awful today. You know what's funny? We know what awful means today. If you go back and you look at literature from the turn of the 19th into the 20th century, awful wasn't a bad thing. And then full of all. We've got terrific. That's terrific! You know, when Perry Como said the traffic is terrific in Home for the Holidays, I don't think he meant that he loved all the traffic, you know, around the Christmas holiday. We messed the words up. Yeah, and, you know, I mentioned briefly about uh, Bob Marley earlier and the I.I. You know, it's intriguing to me that Rastafarianism has preserved many of the ancient Aramaic teachings of Yeshua better than Christianity has. 
One of the reasons for that is because Amharic, Ge'ez, and the Ethiopic, Ethiopic language come, languages come directly from Aramaic. Directly. Interesting. And, uh, you know, the, the other profound thing that, uh, that got me thinking was he just, and I'm sure he'll probably come back to it, He's, he, he went and talked about something about digital versus analog. Now, my business for 18 years before I was doing this full time was compact disc and CD and Blu-ray replication packaging from polycarbonate to finished product. Interesting. And, you know, if you look at the surface of a CD, there's these things called pits and lands, and almost just like the top of a castle. And these little pits here and these lands actually are basically little recorders or samples of information. Now, analog means this. Analog, uh, cassette, tape, vinyl, albums. This is a pure sine wave, something that's completely unbroken, something that's eternally non, that's always connected. There's no break in it. The funny thing about digital, much like a CD, is that it's samples of information. And it's only going to pick up it's little samples of this. As an example, let's look at this. This is 128K MP3. This here would be a 256K MP3. It's got more information. This here is a 320K MP3. Every time you go higher with more samples, you're picking up more information. You want to go backward from an MP3, you get down around 96 samples per second. It starts sounding a little bit like this. You get far enough down, it's you've got Morse code. How much information can you jam into Morse code? Can you shove Stairway to Heaven into Morse code? Or like anything from Glenn Miller? Is that going to happen? It can't hold the information. Your brain can't hold everything. It can only give you a little teeny tiny bit of it. And we're living... This is that divine play. This is the 666. This is the Antichrist, that which keeps you from being an open channel in the world. And somehow we go through trying to understand and grok, and we believe what this thing is telling us, but this thing is only giving us little teeny tiny samples of the actual experience. This right here, that's who you are. You are that light. You're not what's, again, you're not what's projected on the board. You are where it's coming from. And that's not something your brain can even handle or grok. It's what allows your brain to function, but this doesn't work in reverse. We've spent so much time looking at the movie screen, thinking that that's who we were, and what Michael's doing here is he's showing us how to change the film strip in the projector. And the other aspect of that is occasionally just pull the film strip out. Just allow yourself to be open. Just be light itself. You getting what I'm saying? How do you do that? By... Breathing and forgiving and allowing yourself to be open. Stop believing your brain. So it occurs to me there then, so this is not whole and this is holy. Ah. It's whole. It's connected. And when we live in this picture in our minds, I talked yesterday for those that weren't here, about the Harvard research that says in a time frame where 10,000 brain cells fire, the max amount of information you can perceive is nine bits. Sampling, little pieces. And we believe what our brain shows us is true about something outside of us. When it is never true about something outside of us, because what our brain constructs its pictures from is samplings of data within. Nine bits out of 10,000. And when you can collapse that, and basically what first century Aramaic forgiveness does is it collapses 
those pictures that come from this carbon-based memory system that are painted on the inside of our eyeballs and radiate out energy waves that are like what we're painting with. If you paint a picture of somebody on the inside of your eyeballs out of your own hostility or fear, then you are spraying hostility or fear on them. The acid of hostility or fear is not anything that anybody enjoys having sprayed on them. When you change that and you replace it with the first law of Rachma, maintaining a condition of love in your mind, the gateway for love, then the pictures you paint on the inside of your eyeballs are, are sourced from another place. And that other place means that everything you look at is being sprayed literally with the high energy wave of the active presence of love. That transforms everything in your physiology and in your world. Mm. You know, Michael mentioned that word holy. That's the Greek word holos, which means whole. The word in Aramaic and Hebrew is kadosh, kudsha, kadosh. What that means is not holy as in better than secular. It means all-encompassing, all all-embracing, whole. You know, one of those phrases that we, were, that we were given was, as an example, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's an interesting thing. Be perfect. Anybody ever tried to build or construct the perfect life? All the seminars you went to, workshops. We live in Asheville. We're on overload on that whole thing here, okay? And there's no shortage. There's probably 500 other healing whatever things going on tonight, Tuesday night here in Asheville, North Carolina. But here's an interesting thing about the, that word, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That word is gamira. And what gamira means is whole, all-encompassing, all-embracing. Another place is in 1 Timothy in the writings of, this is Paul, where he says, perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. Now, intriguingly, that word in Aramaic for perfect, let's remember, this is Saul of Tarsus. This is a native Aramaic speaker. The letters that he did not write in Aramaic except for some Greek letters that he wrote, were generally written by another scribe that he would dictate them to because he didn't speak all these languages. This is a traveling dude. Even in today's world, the traveling that he did is pretty freaking impressive if you actually see a map of the places Paul has been. Now, that word for perfect love casts out fear sounds like this. Mushalamya. Mushalamya. What's in the middle of it? Shalom. What's that? Shalom. Peace. Now, we've got this weird idea of peace here in the West. We seem to think that a cessation of conflict is what peace means, but actually in Semitic languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, and all the others before it, what peace means, shalom, shlama, means the embracing of the fullness of potential. Not that there isn't conflict, but everything is seen holistically and holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. We've had this sort of ideal where we think that we have to live up to some kind of perfection in the world, and that's the whole problem. We're trying to make something perfect that's not even real. We're trying to shift details out here that aren't even real details, because all we're going to get is whatever it is that the film strip in our, in, that's in our projector is going to allow. You getting what we're saying here? Now, let me say this. That word mashalamya, or mashalam, is an interesting word because we were told that uh, Judas betrayed Jesus, right? Intriguingly, exactly like the story of Typhon betraying Horus. That's a different thing, but maybe, maybe not. Intriguingly, though, 
there was this Gospel of Judas that popped up a few years ago in Greek, and uh, Marvin Meyer, amazing, probably one of the most well-versed, if not the most well-versed biblical scholar on the planet, was hired by National Geographic to head up this league of scholars to translate it. And everybody made this big deal out of it because in Greek it said paradidom, or paradidomi, instead of betray. What does paradidomi mean? It means this, to fulfill, to make whole, to complete, to fulfill something that is asked of you. And everybody made this big deal. Wait a second, he didn't betray him. He just did what was asked of him. And what's even more intriguing is if you go back into almost all of the Greek scriptures referencing Judas betraying Jesus, almost every single one says paradidomi. And I'm like, why is everybody making a big deal out about it in the Gospel of Judas when it was there the whole time right under their noses? Now let's think about this for a second. I know it makes great art to have a guy betraying another guy. But let's look at this really, okay? Hmm. If you actually look in the Jesus teachings, especially in Aramaic, and you start pulling in some of the ancillary Gospels that weren't allowed in the Bible, anybody want to guess who were the two closest companions of Yeshua? According to what we do know? Judas and Mary Magdalene. If anybody wants to think Peter, Peter was the human ego. Peter was that. Peter was the head of the church. Peter, Peter was the thinker. He couldn't understand anything that Jesus was saying. It's funny because I can imagine Yeshua knocking on their foreheads occasionally like, you know, Biff talking to uh, George McFly and Back to the Future, like, anybody in there? You know, knocking, like, if you guys don't get it, my frontline disciples, how are they going to get it? Intriguingly, when it says that he turned them over, it says, Mashalamya. Now, let me ask you something. If someone was going to turn you over and you knew you were going to be crucified and hung on a stick, and you knew you were going to be tortured and maimed, who would you want to do that? For me, it would be my family. I would want to see my family to the absolute last microsecond that that door closed. How did he turn them over? With a kiss. Interesting. Hmm. And then what did he do after that? What did Judas do? He hung himself. Does that sound like something that a vindictive dude is going to do? Hmm. You know what's interesting? If you go back in Egyptian mythology, Typhon hung himself. Hmm. I know it makes great art, but the funny thing is we've lived with this idea of a betrayal here and we've got all this hate that we love to spew toward Judas when all that is is a yet another insane reason, not even reason, but excuse for us to be able to feel the hate and to feel the hatred and the fear and all of that. It's just, and oh, because it happened in the Bible so we can feel it. Blame you it know, on somebody else. Oh yeah, you can find anything you want in the Bible. If you want, you know, let's just say it's all in there. You know, if you're looking for whatever, I'm just going to stay clean on this. Read the Old Testament especially. If you want to find some wild stuff, read it, okay? Stop acting like you did and being an expert. Actually read it and you'll find some crazy things and that's all I'm going to say on that, okay? <laughs> well, tie in with that idea that um, Vladimir Lenin put forward and that is when you can change the meaning of a culture's word, you can, words, you can destroy the culture. And you look at that word betrayal, betrayal is a political, traitor is a political word. It takes Yeshua out of this, the teacher of how to connect with whole field perception, how to live out of the state of being and be in communication with the creator on all levels, and it puts them squarely into a political game, which is where they want them because then 
they can make anything of him they wish. Which is probably what everybody thought of him anyway. They probably thought he was some kind of a physical Mashiach coming back to save the world. And they're constantly asking, when do we draw our weapons? You know, when do we go and start killing people and beheading? Hmm, what did he say? I'm not here for that. But well, yeah, so, look at Christianity today. Yeah, well, it sure looks so, like it's here for that. It's so powerful when you hear him after Peter whacks off the high priest's servant's ear hmm. and Yeshua says, Peter, the reason I allowed you to bring a sword was to teach you a lesson. If you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. How different would our world be today if we could just hear that single message? Now, it doesn't matter if the sword is your tongue with rage. If you wound with that, then the one you wound is yourself. You will die from that wound that you inflict on yourself. 